4: Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So, every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two movies about bad movies and the people that make them. Each feature men with dreams that outstrip their abilities, who nonetheless surround themselves with a crew working to try to make those dreams come true. One wants to be Orson Welles while working on a shoestring budget and making movies about extraterrestrial grave robbers. The other wants to be, well, that's not clear, but he definitely wants to make a movie. Tasha, could you pull the strings on this week's pairing?
2: We are all of us interested in this week's pairing because that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives, or at least the next couple of hours. This week, we'll be revisiting Ed Wood, Tim Burton's 1994 biopic of Edward D. Wood Jr., the auteur behind Glenn or Glenda, and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Burton's film follows a few eventful years in Wood's life, a stretch that takes him from directing a poorly attended play based on his war experiences to befriending Bella Lugosi to the premiere of Plan 9, which Wood says is the one I'll be remembered for. Then we'll turn our attention to The Disaster Artist, a film directed by and starring James Franco and based on a book by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell based on Sestero's experience making The Room, a film that, like Plan 9, has become a go-to example of a movie so bad it loops all the way back around to being good.
4: Some episodes find us laboring over our pairings. At other times, they're too obvious to ignore. On the first half of this week's episode, we'll look at Ed Wood, a film about the man who helped define, however accidentally, what the So Bad It's Good movie looks like. Then, with The Disaster Artist, we'll consider a more recent story of a filmmaker of dubious talent exploring both what happens when we take pleasure in others' ineptitude, and what it means when we examine the lives of people whose art falls short of their lofty aspirations.
3: Tim Burton, director of Batman. Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands now takes you to a completely different world. The true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And action! He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving? You've got to get through that door. Ah, That was perfect. Perfect? Do you know anything about the film production? Well, I like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bella Lugosi. I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. <laughs> you flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. <laughs> Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing panties sweaters pumps it's just something i do you don't like sex with girls no i love sex with girls wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them how can you act so casual when you're dressed like that all right everybody let's finish this picture touchstone pictures presents johnny depp martin landau sarah jessica parker patricia arquette and bill murray in the true story get my hand rolling of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get
4: all your friends to get baptized?
3: Just so you can make a monster movie. And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn
4: this up? Shake his
3: legs around, looks like he's killing oh! This is the one. Step on in. I command you! This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better.
4: television used to dream in black and white to fill the hours between dusk and dawn stations would run one old movie after another films acquired in bulk and on the cheap with little regard for quality a night owl could pick up a film education by watching the combination of great and forgotten movies that ran in the off hours before channels signed off for the night by playing the national anthem some of these movies stood out for their quality others for some odd touch or another mostly they blurred together but some proved memorable because they were awful in some eccentric, extraordinary way. Whether they featured Hitler's head in a glass jar or a villain that looked like a man wearing a gorilla suit topped by a diving helmet, because it actually was a man wearing a gorilla suit topped by a diving helmet. In 1978, writers Randy Dreyfus, Harry Medved, and Michael Medved, the latter most film critic who would later turn into a right-wing conservative pundit, drew heavily from this well to compile the book, the 50 worst films of all time. That same year, Ed Wood died shortly after being evicted from the Hollywood apartment he shared with his wife. At the time of his death, Wood was a largely forgotten, impoverished alcoholic. He even escaped notice in Dreyfus and the Medveds' book. But that changed two years later when the Medveds published their follow-up, the Golden Turkey Awards, which named him the worst director and his 1959 film Plan 9 from Outer Space, the worst movie of all time. It's the sort of dubious honor from which cult followings are born, And Wood's life lent itself to further study, first with Rudolph Gray's biography, Nightmare of Ecstasy, then with Burton's Ed Wood, which cast Johnny Depp as the filmmaker. A World War II veteran and a cross-dresser with a particular enthusiasm for Argyle sweaters, Wood was an unusual figure with a knack for keeping people in his orbit with entertaining stories and wild ideas for films. And he wasn't all talk, either. Wood made movies. Sure, they were cheap and barely saw release, but they got made. And they had heart. In Glitter Glinda, he sympathetically depicted cross-dressing, and for all its flaws, Plan 9 is a movie like no other. Burton's film is defined by its choices. It ends the story before Wood's long, sad decline, and it has Depp playing the director as a chipper, never-say-die visionary who won't let the world tell him no. Stefan Chapsky's striking black-and-white cinematography recalls classic biopics, and a theremin-heavy Howard Shore score gives the film a grandiosity that never tips all the way over into irony. We're invited to be amused by Wood's efforts, but not to mock them. He's a quirky dreamer and worthy of admiration. But Burton, working from a script by Scott Alexander and Larry Karazowski, also lets another story play out under the surface, and sometimes lets it bubble up. When frustrated, Ed drinks. He takes inspiration from a chance encounter and exchange of frustrations with Orson Welles, but it only takes a little bit of knowledge of film history to know that many more troubles were ahead of Welles than the ones he shares with Ed. And most poignantly, it's Sarah and Ed's relationship with Bella Lugosi, played in an Academy Award-winning performance by Martin Landau. Bailey was once a tremendous star, but by the time he meets Ed, he's descended into unemployment and drug addiction. His past may be more glorious, but by the 1950s, he's just as marginal a showbiz figure as the others would attracts, from the phony psychic Criswell to the fired horror host Vampira. It's a movie about people who go to extremes to realize their dreams, but also about how dangerous those dreams can be to those who try too long to live in them.
1: was the important news you couldn't tell me on the phone
3: again well i started thinking about what you're saying about how your movies need to make a profit now what is the one thing if you put it in a movie it'll be successful tits no better than that a star okay you must have me confused with david selznick i don't make major motion pictures i make crap yes but if you take that crap and put a star in it then you've got something yeah crap with a star no something better something impressive maybe the biggest money maker you've ever had fine all right you may be right but it doesn't freaking matter i can't afford a star so what are we even talking about all right what if i told you you could have a star for one thousand dollars who lugosi yes Lagosi. isn't he dead no he's not dead he lives in baldwin hills I met him recently, and he really wants to be in our movie. Why would Legosi want to do a sex change flick? Because he's my friend. All right, fine. You can direct it. I want a script in three days. We start shooting a week from Monday.
2: Oh. Oh, Mr. Weiss, thank
3: you so much. You won't regret it. I won't let you down.
4: So uh, this is a movie I hadn't seen in a while, but I've seen it several times over the years. I'm very fond of it. How, what did everyone else think about Ed Wood?
1: I quite liked it, and, and I liked it more than I did when it came out. When it came out, I was starting to turn a little bit on Tim Burton, or at least seeing Ed Wood as being too much of a Tim Burton character rather than mm. as you know a separate person. I mean, he had just done movie after movie about misunderstood, quirky geniuses right or quirky artists that nobody understands and that had been a theme that he just kept hitting on over and over and over again and i was getting tired of it but it played great <laughs> this time and i think those objections that i had at the time were a petty
4: It's interesting that you spring that up, because we'll get into that in a little bit when we talk about Burton's career as a whole. But but Genevieve Tasha, what did did you think?
2: I mean, I don't think that those are petty complaints at all, because I I had the exact same—I went through the exact same process. I didn't care for this movie when it came out. It seemed kind of garish and artificial and cartoonish. But given the way that Burton's career has gone since then, I now know the true meaning of Garrett and cartoonish. (laughs) And this seems comparatively dialed back. Like you can see a lot of the things that he likes to do, both in terms of the performances he likes to draw from actors uh, and just like the editing and pacing and comedy and, and themes of his movies in general. But here they seem comparatively restrained. I also, as I've gotten older, I have probably gotten more sentimental and I really enjoyed Landau's performance the first time I watched. This movie like it was it was the highlight for me, but this time around, I just found it so heartbreaking mm-hmm. and and yeah. compelling he 's really, really good, but it 's also just a really well written character um, in terms of the, just the sheer melancholy that goes into it and the uh, the emotions that it evokes.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely agree with you on Landau. As for my history with this movie, I I saw it when I was a teenager. It couldn't have been when it came out. I would probably be a little too young for it then, but um, it was definitely in the 90s. And I felt similarly about it then as I do now, which is that there's a lot of parts of this movie I like, but I still am not particularly enamored of it as a whole movie. But the performance is uh not just landau's depths as well, which I think we'll talk about in more depth, but I revisited landau's performance specifically when he died earlier this year, and I was tasked in my job with uh writing up some of his most famous roles so i <laughs> I, I, I went back and uh or actually I tasked myself because no one else would do yeah. it uh, uh, landau l- l- l-
1: a little a little inside <laughs> yeah tip here. like. Uh, people dying is the worst thing that can happen <laughs> to you if you work inside of uh publication.
0: Yeah. But so I, I revisited a bunch of scenes. And probably
4: to it. the people who die as well.
1: Uh, <laughs> they friends and family. Yeah, yeah. It's natural. <laughs> <All> right, <go laughs> that's the second worst thing. Part though. of living.
0: <laughs> but I, I did revisit Landau's scenes specifically for that to just kind of re-familiarize myself with it. And they're great. He's great. There's a lot about this movie that's really great. But something about it, I think it's probably... Either just the tone never quite clicks for me, or maybe it's just because we are only seeing this one bit of Wood's life and, you know, maybe not getting the complete picture. Although that, that's not really something I want. So I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% clear on my feelings on this movie and why it doesn't entirely hit me the way it feels like it should hit me. So I'm looking forward to discussing why that might be with you guys. This
4: is something that, that's kind of like just drawing from the well of my own memory, but I remember reading some interview with Burton before it came out, or very late in production, and someone asked him if it was a comedy or a drama, he's like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah.
0: And I, and I think that is, because like, I sat down to watch it this week and was like expecting, I was remembering it as a comedy, and I was expecting to laugh a lot. And like I laughed, but I didn't laugh a lot. Like, So it didn't really feel like a full-blown comedy to me, but it also didn't feel... Like a drama or even a dramedy, like I said, it's a it's kind of a tonal mystery that I haven't quite wrapped my head around. Yeah. I mean,
2: to me, that's actually one of the things that makes the film interesting because I think the Edward character and the way Depp plays him in that like that bright shiny kind of parody of mm-hmm. the fifties kind of way is. A thousand percent at odds with the the serious, sad way that Landau plays Lugosi as this fading star whose life is falling mm-hmm. apart. You know, he's, he's in the process of dying alone and sad and a junkie. In the meantime, Ed Wood's running around going, my next one will be better. Yeah. But it's so deliberate because it's it's the crash of two different eras of filmmaking, two different eras of stardom, two different ways of working. And like I think that the tonal mismatch between this guy who lives in his own head in the clouds and this guy who lives in the past is very deliberate. I think it can be really jarring at times because the film goes from slapstickish to just tremendously sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it works conceptually at least.
0: Yeah, I think works conceptually is a pretty good uh, Mm -hmm. uh, encapsulation of of how I feel about it.
1: I I would make a couple of points. One is, I think this is a really great script, and I do appreciate the framing of it. We talk a lot about pitfalls of mm-hmm. of bio and one of those pitfalls is is covering too much time or yeah, not Scott, really... I could
0: see Scott like full like, body yeah, cringe when I, just I like, said I just something like, about choosing, wishing we got more of the,
1: Choosing like to begin life. the film more or less around around the time that he did Glen or Glenda and then ending with plan nine and everything in between. That felt like a really good section of career for what and actually gives the film a nice arc and it just it works it works well. It organizes his, his life in a better in a kind of satisfying Way so I I'd, I'd say that and then the other thing point I wanted to make about Edward himself I think is there, there's a conceit of uh, that I don't think makes him like an artificial character but I think he's somebody who just has a way of processing failure and, you know and being an artist that's just kind of innocent and enthusiastic and unbowed uh, I mean the, the the key moment of the film to me is when he's made Glenn or Glenda and he's on the phone with the producer producer says it's the worst film he's ever seen, and and Ed Wood's reaction is, well, my next one will be better. Mm -hmm. And that click, and he moves on, and and his ability to just let those things slide and, and move forward and embrace the part of the process that he really enjoys, that
4: felt quite true to me. He's someone with no plan B. I mean, this is someone who's not going to fall back. He's plan
1: nine.
0: He's <laughs> plan nine. That's true. But someone else gave that to him.
4: That's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do want to talk about this in terms of the context of Burton's career, which, for a certain point of view, you you can kind of see this as the last Tim Burton movie. You know, I mean, Mars Attacks is a film I like a lot, but it's sort of like the last, like, really personal film you can really point to. There's, just, there's sort of this arc from, from Pee-wee's Big Adventure through Beetlejuice, through Batman, through especially Edward Scissorhands and, and this one where, where sort of quirky outsiders are what he does and, like, and he has a real knack for them. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that, that it may have worn thin for, for some viewers by 1994, but now I think it looks a little better because I'm hot and cold on Burton these days, mostly, mostly cold, but in this period, he was really one of the people these movies I look forward to the most.
2: I think part of that is a time of life thing because it Burton is so about the awkward outsiders that can't find their place in the world but are happy with their lives anyway or come to a place of being happy with their lives anyway. And I think that when you're, you know, in your 20s and possibly 30s and you're trying to figure your life out, that becomes a much more trenchant message. Mm-hmm. I think I also think that like as you're growing up and figuring out what cinema is, something that stands out as different and crazy and specific and distinctive as Burton is more appealing. And as you get older, seeing him do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over Hmm. and over and over and over and (laughs) over, often with the same cast in places that it it really isn't appropriate, becomes tiresome. But he was still kind of at the edge of like this being like a fresh thing that he did that nobody else did, and that weren't quite tired of. Like.
1: Tasha, are you implying that they could find a better singer than Helena Bonham Carter? Uh, I'm uh, not
2: implying it. I'll just say it. You <laughs> could find a better singer than Helena um, Bonham Carter. One
1: thing I will say, he, the, the the shift for me happened where it just seemed like he found whatever the Tim Burton template was and that started to be applied rather than within that template being a ton of invention happening, you know, as there is in Pee Wee's Big Adventure and in Beetlejuice and in this movie, which I those three I think are his best. What about Edison? Adder- yeah, I'm not as big yeah, a fan, no, but uh, like but still I think it's invested with that kind of like moment to moment creative energy, not just this conceit where it's like, Okay, it's Tim Burton doing mm-hmm. his Tim Burton thing and he's applying it to whatever story he, he is half invested in, you know what I'm saying?
0: I think sure. It also benefits in hindsight by being a movie about making movies and specifically a movie about an auteur that is pulled off in a way where the filmmaking is very present. Like you are seeing Burton's choices throughout this film from the black and white to, you know, the way the score is utilized to the way he uses models and special effects you know like this is a very movie movie you know and burton makes a lot of very movie movies but in this context about a filmmaker and about how films are actually put together and the choices that go into making them i think it's kind of appropriate and interesting that you know you see those choices so clearly being made on screen
1: one of the things that fascinates me about filmmakers making movies about filmmakers and this we'll talk about as well with the disaster artists is they just have i think a different point of view about it than folks on the outside i mean there's an appreciation for directors who maybe do make terrible movies but there's a there's a kind of a creative spirit and a sense of like esprit de corps that that kind of pokes through anyway and that ends up being celebrated uh, by filmmakers in a way that they never are by critics.
2: I mean, that's something that we talked about on the last set of episodes with State and Maine. Hollywood loves making movies about making movies and in part it's because, you know, when you, when you live your life in this, like it can it can take a year or two years to make even an ordinary average movie. Just the process is so convoluted and complicated and when you live your life embedded in that, I think you're really sensitive to all of the trials and tribulations and ups and downs of it. And then when it's your career and it's, you know, 10 years or 20 years of this is what you're doing full time, it's just, it's something they're really sensitive to, you know, it's, a, it's It's a write-what-you-know situation. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not surprising that a filmmaker would be the person to make a film about how rough it is to be a filmmaker.
0: That said... Ed Wood was not that kind of filming. Yeah. <laughs> he, he never spent two years on, 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 on a film, and you know that is very true. But know. I think
4: there's an appreciation of how hard it is to make even a bad movie. Just to, to see a film end through completion, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're not doing it well, just getting across the finish line is something of an accomplishment.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a certain admiration of that approach that comes through here. You know, of his willingness to be like, "Why would I take a second take? That was perfect." You know, like <laughs> really, I I saw that seen i saw that scene very differently i mean i don't think this movie is him praising like wood's method but i think like if you are a working director who labors over your product a lot as i am assuming burton did and does another director just being so confident in their choices regardless of how good those choices are i think is probably something that a a working director would be kind of enamored of
2: Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, to me, that scene was all about how much he created his own problems, hmm. how he, he's full of like, these emotions and these drives, but just expressly not the attention to detail or <laughs> quality or, or talent yeah. to make the films that he wants to make. And he's completely unaware of it, but very much like Tommy Wiseau in Disaster Artist, everyone around him seems to be aware of it. They just, Mm -hmm. they don't have, either they don't have the power to do anything about it or they just don't have the energy. There's a lot of, (laughs) okay, if he's going to do it that way, I
1: guess. You have have even the Baptists on set being like, (laughs) Do you know
2: anything about the art of making motion pictures?
1: (laughs) But there is a sense that you get from Tim Burton, and this is part of the Orson Welles scene, that these artists are in some way on equal footing. And that's something you would never consider yeah, I, I
4: love that scene. I mean, I'm not sure it's necessary to, to move the plot along, but I think it's so key in establishing that on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of, of uh, filmmaking accomplishments, you know, the problems are the same. The worries are the same. And in some degrees the, the, the drive is the same. And, you know, Wells didn't really have a plan B either, except for doing, you know, crappy commercial voiceovers. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's not necessarily needed in the plot, although, I mean, it does, it's like a a turnaround for him. Sure. But it certainly feels as artificial as it is. It feels as invented as it is. But it's such a great moment in terms of, as you say, just kind of establishing a commonality between people, like no matter where they rise rise or fall in talent, no matter where they end up on the spectrum, no matter how luck works out for them, they might all actually be equal. But it also reminded me a great deal of uh, the Orson Welles thing at the end of uh, the Muppet movie, the original Muppet movie. It's been a while. They all finally make it to Hollywood, and Orson Welles is the one that gives the standard uh-huh. rich and famous contract. <laughs> but again, there's that idea of like coming to Orson Welles as kind of the godfather of, of great film sure. to get the mark of approval. And there's just sort of that <laughs> sense that he, he basically just exists to give people the thumbs up.
1: Well, the other important thing, though, about that scene is that they're both outsiders to the system. Mm-hmm. They're both... You know, independent-minded people with a with a vision that is defied or manipulated by the gatekeepers. Um, you know, I think with, with Plan Nine and or and Citizen Kane are put on that sort of equal plane in the sense that those are fully realized visions, however they go, which 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 is at different ends of the quality spectrum, but. You know, an experience like Glen or Glenda or Bride of the Monster, I mean, there's a lot of compromises and a lot of hassle that they have to go through. And certainly Wells, on every every project but Citizen Kane, was put through the ringer in one way or the other i mean as he says in the movie he had to cast charlton heston as a mexican <laughs> mm-hmm. in touch of evil. A
2: great little mean dig yeah
1: yeah and that's a flaw for that for that that film is i think still a total masterpiece touch of evil but that is uh, they again could have had a better person in that role than uh, charlton heston
2: i think there is a, a kind of a great and tragic irony that comes out of that scene is just sort of the feeling that Ed Wood, like in spite of the problems that he had with critics on the set or funding or not being talented, he did have an awful lot of freedom to create what he wanted to create. Mm -hmm. And there's Orson Welles sitting across from him lacking that freedom you know he he made what he made under those kinds of guns but you can't help but imagine like how much better could he have been you you have to assume that he wouldn't have been making what uh what ed wood was making if he'd had t- the total creative freedom that ed wood kind of had
0: ed wood also like made that freedom for himself and like as he's characterized in this movie is a much more flexible uh director than i think uh, wells ever would be like i'm thinking of well he spends so much of this movie f- trying to get his films financed which is what gives him that freedom but also requires him to make trade-offs like making his leading man the the son of a meat baron uh, you know but it's shown in this movie Wood's personality is being just the kind of person who would be like Okay, I'm gonna make that work. That's my movie now, you know. And I don't think that that is necessarily something I would picture Orson Welles ever doing. Um, Certainly, you no. know. So as far as contrasts go, <laughs> there, is- there are many other ways in which they are different too. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but
2: to some degree, I just I can't help but watch that scene and picture like tim burton imagining himself in that booth across from orson Mm wells talking to him about you know the the common problems that all directors have and how you know he wants more freedom he wants more funding he wants more ability to do whatever he wants
3: excuse me sir yes um well i'm a young filmmaker and a real big fan i i just wanted to meet you my pleasure i'm orson wells i'm uh Edward D. Wood Jr. What you working on? Well, the financing just fell through for the third time on Don Quixote. Do you know I can't believe it? That sounds just exactly like my problems. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal. But they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Ah, Mr. Wells. Is it all worth it? It is when it works. You know, the one film of mine where I had total control, Kane. The studio hated it. But they didn't get to touch a frame. Ed. Yes? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams?
4: The parallel here isn't necessarily between Ed Wood with Orson Welles, but Ed Wood and, and the relationship with Bela Lugosi and Tim Burton befriending Vincent Price late in his life. He mm-hmm. was a great childhood influence, and they kind of enjoyed sort of a, a late career working relationship. Um, he did a short film about Vincent Price called Vincent. Price was in Edward Sister Hands, and I think that's where there's a certain amount of personal investment in, in that relationship in this film.
0: Yeah, I mean, that relationship is really kind of the heart of this movie, and I think it's the To me, anyway, the most interesting part of it outside of making movies and all the interesting stuff that happens there. But just in terms of kind of the emotional core of the movie, like that's the closest I get to like really engaging with it. Like the most part, everything besides that relationship kind of leaves me a little cold.
4: It's interesting, too. You talk about how he gets adversity thrown at him or or a new complication. He just kind of runs with it. And Lugosi's death, which is very sad for Ed in this movie, but also becomes just another thing Mm -hmm. to, okay, well, what do I do now? All right, I'll use the footage I've got, and we'll hire a chiropractor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's absurd. A spitting image, right?
2: (laughs) From the nose up. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's such a touching relationship. And you have to look at it, looking at it from Lugosi's perspective as somebody who is washed up, an addict, running out of money, in declining health, encountering somebody like Wood who... Meets him with such unfettered enthusiasm and considers him a legend. The sweetness of that really gives the film so much of its soul.
4: I love the contrast between Lugosi, the persona, and Lugosi, the person. And they kind of speak in the same voice, but it's, you know, he goes from from testing that coffin to, oh, where's my bus pass? (laughs) This is such a nice bit of detail.
2: But he's such a pro. I mean, one of the things that always gets me is that sequence in the the lake with the octopus Mm, where he's asked to (laughs) Mm. do something patently ridiculous and depressing and not great for his health. You know, rolling around in, in ice cold water at four in the morning at his age is not helpful, but then he does it and he, he's a he's as good as you can get during that like the the screaming he actually makes the uh the octopus's uh deflated tentacles look relatively convincing and you can see why wood admires him so much but i think that relationship is important to the film overall to its to its overall arc for another reason which is if not for that relationship i'm not sure that the film would convince me in any way that ed would actually loved cinema or wanted to make movies. It's mm. it's not something that he he really talks about like the why's of, but his admiration for Lugosi, like through the window of that you find out so much about his his early encounters with movies, what's important to him in cinema, how much he admires the world of cinema and through his eyes, you get to see Legosi as this great actor who does great things. Which, if if not for kind of that view, like watching him watch Legosi, you would just be sitting, seeing a guy in pancake makeup, like sitting in a chair reading some ridiculous dialogue. The relationship between them ends up being important for understanding both of them. I think.
4: So it's really a kind of outside the scope of the film as to why Wood's films have lived on, you do get that scene of the couple of execs, like watching Glen Glinda and, and then kind of laughing at it I'm in the process thinking, maybe it's a practical joke to begin with, but, mm-hmm. but why do people take pleasure in watching bad movies by the world's worst director? And it, do do they? I mean, I certainly have. I, I've, I've enjoyed Woods films on that level. And uh, you know, it's been a while. But yeah, I think I've seen most of his major uh, films. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're, they're, I found them all pretty fun to watch. Uh, how about everybody else?
2: When Ed Wood came out when I was in college, I was writing for the school newspaper. And I went out and got as many Woods films as I could watch <laughs> and watch them. And let me tell you, Plan 9 is fun because it's it's just so absurdist in its awfulness. But you get a little deeper into his his work and it just gets depressing, especially his later films, which are... Oh, yeah. I, 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 Orgy of the Dead? Did you or, see Orgy, Orgy of the Dead? of the Dead is the oh, one that came to mind. so brutal. It's just an, an endless, slow, bad strip tease with yeah. Criswell. And I, I watched
1: that because it was in the whatever the unrated section was at Blockbuster. It's like <laughs> all right, Orgy of the Dead. So it's <laughs> it be... sounds great. And it does it does indeed have lots of nudity, but uh Oh, it's so brutal! It's just basically one fireside dis- disrobing after another. Yeah, with
2: with women just sort of like walking in uh, distracted circles on a bad yeah. set as they slowly remove their clothing, yeah. and Cr- Criswell standing in the background saying ridiculous things. That that movie ha- has a line in it that my husband and I still quote, where there it's I think it's uh, him and Vampira are just watching women take take off their ridiculous costumes, and eventually a uh, woman. In a cat suit, takes off her costume, and Criswell goes, "A pussy was born to be whipped." (laughs) 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 I don't know what that means, but but we got a good laugh out of it. So, so occasionally, just that kind of over-the-top ridiculousness, like it makes you laugh because, to some degree, you you barely believe what you're seeing. You're you're trying to imagine the mind that came up with that and thought it was a good thing to put on the screen.
4: The filters just aren't in place with yeah. with, with filmmaking at this level. The, well, it come, the, comes off as being a lot more personal than other sorts of bad movies. That's
1: the thing. That's the thing to me. It's like I, the ineptitude is one thing. And I mean, in, in his films are can be sub, sublimely inept. But the Edward film I always return to do is Glenn or Glenda. Glenn or Glenda to me is the far funnier and more interesting of that in Plan 9. Because uh, because he's in it. Because it's so plainly a personal film. and such an unusual Film And then it's got the weird cutaways to stock footage into Bella Lugosi saying pulls the strings. And it's, it's just it's a it's got it all, you know, and I think we'll, we'll talk about this too with the disaster artists, because I think these really transcendently bad films have a very personal quality to them that is essential to the mix. I guess
2: I was also I was at Fantastic Fest in Austin this year, and they they managed to find an old Ed Wood film that had been lost forever. Basically, um, there was like a single uh, existing copy of it, and it's called it was called Take It Out in Trade. <laughs> and when the when the audience found out they were going to see like a, a completely lost Ed Wood film, they went berserk. There was so much excitement in that room and then over the course of the film you could feel that excitement deflate. I, like you could you could hear it in the audience that the energy was just going out of it because it was brutally bad. Mm. Mostly the problem, well, I mean there were a lot of problems, but the the problem that got me was it was incredibly redundant. Uh, he just he cut in the same footage over and over and over mm. and the narrative didn't make any damn sense at all. But Edward himself is in it in drag <laughs> playing an angry sad drag queen. So it like things like that become fascinating just for the kind of the historicity of them. It was a really interesting thing to see, but at the same time, the thing about that kind of camp absurdism is it, it usually you run out of it after a little while. Like if it's mm-hmm. if there's just one joke, you get tired of it pretty quickly.
1: The best ones have a little certain magic to them, though. There's a ma- there's a magic to Glen or Glenda. There's a magic to Plan Nine. There's a magic to the room. But as plan, you say, Glen Glenda's short. Plan Nine
4: yeah. keeps giving too. It's like. Tor johnson's a cop
2: oh
1: my God.
4: <laughs> sort of this lumbering you <laughs> he gets know.
1: all the dialogue that was another great moment in, in the movie about him getting all the dialogue uh, and he's completely unintelligible
0: you know you can certainly remember transcendent moments from a bad movie but i think like if it's a bad movie that you are do actually revisit like it's not so much that it needs to hang together but it's that like the viewing experience needs to be tolerable so that those, those transcendent moments have to be, like, throughout the movie, not just, you know, at the beginning. And they need to—it needs to be short, preferably.
2: Either short or—I mean, I, I think about—inevitably, I think about the room. I think about Tommy Wiseau's veiny, flexing ass <laughs> and how brutally awful that is. He's
1: like a bull. He's like a, it's like a, it's like some sort of a bull. You
0: guys, are getting ahead of ourselves.
2: <laughs> He's gristly. But the thing about that sequence is it goes on long enough that it comes
0: back around mm-hmm. again. The rake effect.
2: If— if, if that that Mm-hmm-hmm. sequence was repeated like six times throughout the film, which is kind of what happens in <laughs> Edwards' Take It Out and Trade, you run out of humor yeah. with it.
1: There are a few things we we didn't get to that I I just kind of want to mention that I love about Ed Wood because I do really love this film and I kind of mm-hmm. want to mention one is that I really love the troupe, all these weirdos uh, uh, Criswell and Vampira Vampira and Thor, uh, Tor Thor Johnson and uh, whoever the guy from uh, Doogie Howser plays yeah um, and,
4: and it, it accumulates over the course of the film too yeah it's just I, there's
1: yeah. A, there's just an ex- a warmth to that and an excitement of just of just the same. Group of misfits getting together to make a movie, and uh, I mean, how, how can you not? I love f- them all feel- piling into
4: the car together to go to the premiere. Yeah, yeah.
1: What uh, do you
0: think of Sarah Jessica Parker as the the scoldy Shrew? The- I was gonna, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna bring that <laughs> okay. up because <laughs> for me, yeah, it's
2: straight straight out of state in Maine. Although she's a less sympathetic character here, I think. But I think what's what's interesting about that accumulation of of freaks and geeks who are around him is as that group gets bigger and and more cohesive and more like joined together at the hip she becomes more and more of this like sad outsider mm-hmm. figure who doesn't know how to have fun and doesn't know how to accept people for what they are and that sequence where Wood shows up as an exotic dancer I'd completely forgotten how that played out
4: mm. and it's like from Freaks it's basically a scene yeah, from Freaks
2: yeah and people are like are leering at him and are cheering and kind of like making groping gestures at him and I expected him to reveal who he he was and have a lot of, especially the men who are leering at him, have a a negative reaction. I expected a gay panic joke. And instead, he pulls off his veil and everybody cheers. It's just, it's a moment of celebration for everybody except Sarah Jessica Parker's character, who is offended, mortally offended, not just at what he's doing, but that people are accepting it.
0: Yeah, well, I I think it's that she's offended that, you know, it's confirmation that she is outside of his circle now. And Mm -hmm. and that I think is especially wounding when we get the kind of the tidbit about her paying his rent and helping him write and, you know, all the ways she supported him, supported his weirdness. And now that he has found a group of fellow weirdos that and she's outside of it. Like I can see why she is upset and offended by that. I don't think she's necessarily portrayed with that much depth here, but I can see a version of that character that is a lot more sympathetic. The, square, well,
4: the squares don't fare very well. In the no, well, she's, hurt. I
0: mean,
1: she's, <laughs> uh, she's hurt too because yeah. she, uh, you know, his cross dressing. This is an essential part of who. He is, and he hasn't shared that with her at all. She mm-hmm. finds out about it in the worst possible way. So you can kind of sympathize with that while also maybe not thinking that that character is, is sympathetically drawn as, as she might have been.
4: The real Dolores Fuller, I believe, liked the film. She actually went on to, to a fair amount of success as a songwriter writing songs. At she wrote Do Alice the report. Clam. Yeah, Do the Clam. <laughs> but she did find that, that her, this portrayal of her was a little, a little too much, a little, a little she wasn't that shrewish.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a degree to which that character is is portrayed as resenting the fact that he's happy, specifically because in her – I I just find it to be – like, it may be shallow, but it's also a pretty accurate portrayal of a certain kind of conservative mindset that resents other people's lifestyles and resents them even more because – they aren't universally derided. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just how dare you be gay. It's how dare you be gay and then have the right to get married and have expect society... Expect me to make a cake for you. <laughs> and have people <laughs> expect me to make a cake for you. It's how dare you have sex outside of marriage and have society think that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because there's a sense of isolation and persecution that comes with not having everybody share your moral choices. And I feel like that character may not be nuanced or portrayed in a friendly way, but in some ways, it's pretty accurate.
0: I think it's it's accurate as an idea or a personification of an idea. I don't, well, it's apparently not accurate and uh, doesn't feel quite real in terms of like a, a person, like a human person. You well, know? the
2: actual real human person that it was based on. Certainly. Yeah.
3: Over. I need a normal life. Did you really mean those things? I'm tired of living like this. But Poodle. I just sucked it out so you could finish your movie. And now that it's done, so am I.
1: Uh, before we wrap up, just a couple of technical nods I have to make. One is to the photography in the film, which is so. Beautiful and transporting, and really almost better than Ed Wood <laughs> deserves. I remember it <laughs> thinking, you know, if you look at an Ed Wood film, the black and white photography in those films are, are not particularly striking or expressive in any way. This has got a richness to it that isn't necessarily in keeping with the look of an Ed Wood film, but still brings you back to that era in an effective way.
4: It's weird, too, because, you know, in, in this sort of like in this post black and white era, you can usually still tell, like, when it was shot you know the, Under the Cherry Moon or something like Rumble Fish like 1980s black and white movies this mm. looks like this is different it's kind of an out of time black and white look Yeah, so it's, um, it
1: seems legit and,
4: and oddly Ed Wood's films are, are kind of hard to track down in their original format now they're easier to find in colorized versions uh, which is kind of takes spoils no. it spoils the artistic intent
1: yeah even Ed Wood even Ed Wood has, uh, <laughs> can't be spoiled the other the other thing I have to mention is I think Howard Shore's score is a, mm-hmm. an absolute Masterpiece. Love uh, that
0: Swan Lake motif. Oh, God, oh my it's... gosh! The first
2: time that came <laughs> up, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> I mean, it's, an, it's a very sad and tragic moment, yeah. but it's kind of lampshaded with the Swan Lake bit.
1: I was watching the, the opening credits and thinking, "Man, Danny Elfman really knocked himself <laughs> out here." And I was like, "Oh yeah, okay." Howard Shore did this.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Burton and Elfman had a falling out for a the, timely apparently, falling apparently out. Apparently, for just this one film, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was—I think it's one of his best scores in his movies too. Mm-hmm. Nothing against Danny Elfman, but, but no, it was, uh, yeah, you know, I mean Howard Shore Sometimes it's good the, to see other other composers, you know? Yeah,
2: you know, sure. if only that would happen with uh, Tim Burton and Johnny Depp and Helena uh, Bonham Carter for a movie mm, or two. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, kind of has, though. He hasn't done anything with Depp in a little while. You well,
2: know, Depp's busy making Fantastic Beasts films and getting raked over the coals for it. Yeah, But anyway, the, the one thing that I kind of wanted to bring up is... I guess it's just in keeping with Tim Burton's love of the outsider flailing to express themselves kind of story. But I was really surprised at how much this movie recalled to me Nightmare Before Christmas. Which hmm. is you know, which, which he didn't direct. Yeah. Henry Selick directed it, and should get full credit <laughs> for making that Everyone movie with its visual. <laughs> but you know Burton; it came from an idea by Burton, and it's fundamentally the story of a misunderstood artist who gets an idea into his head and is trying to create. Something that he has no capacity for understanding, what either what it means or how to how to create it, but whips all of these people up into a frenzy around trying to create this thing that he has in his head, and then it comes apart in a spectacular fashion. It's it's just amazing to me how similar those stories are.
4: Yeah, I'd actually never considered that angle, Tasha. That that certainly would make a, a fine. Pairing in some other way, but we're going to stick with what we've got, um, and that'll wrap up this discussion. And we'll be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. And while we don't have anything on our most recent episode, which covered state and Maine and three billboards outside of Abbey, Missouri, uh, we'd still love to get some. I think people are kind of catching up with that latter movie now. So, uh, you know, it's much to talk about there. Uh, in the meantime, Genevieve, want to get start started with a letter concerning our recent episodes about The Graduate and the Meyerowitz stories?
0: Happily. Kevin writes, I like the point that Jean makes to her brothers when she discovered they vandalized the car of the man who sexually harassed her, that they did it to make themselves feel better. But in the end, she is still effed up. I work in law enforcement, and therefore with a lot of alpha males. Whenever sexual abuse is brought up, the common opinion is that if somebody did that to my child, I would be in prison for killing them. This is seen as noble and an expression of how much they love their child. I have always seen this as a very selfish attitude. By committing this act of revenge, you would be depriving your family of your emotional and economic support. You would also be abandoning the victim when they need you most. Add to that that they will most likely blame themselves for your incarceration, adding to the emotional damage that they are already suffering."
2: We talked about this a bit in the podcast, I think. That sequence just works so well because you get this kind of awful story and then you get a, a catharsis
0: for it. Mm-hmm. Like you get
2: a, a kind of fun scene of a ridiculous, over-the-top revenge, the kind of thing that cinema so often into. And then you get called on to actually think about what you've seen and what it means. It's it's constructed really well. But, I mean, I agree that the whole idea of I'm going to revenge myself on whoever wronged a member of my family being presented as this kind of performative way of getting over a feeling of helplessness. Mm. Like, I'm going to engage in violence to get over feeling like I couldn't do anything. And I'm going to make it over the top in order to basically get my own back with interest. It's just something that we see so often in culture and in cinema in general. And seeing it undermined here and and talked through was just, I think it was a really daring choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I know I've brought up on this podcast. I brought it up last week that you know I don't particularly love stories of revenge, and I do tend to really like stories that subvert the nature of revenge, which is why uh, one of the reasons I liked Three Billboards a lot, and why I liked this scene so much in Meyerwitz stories. And uh, Kevin does a good job kind of enumerating the problems I have with uh, revenge narratives. He sounds and like the a, logic good, uh, a good, good,
1: responsible law enforcement officer does, as well. does.
0: <laughs>
4: we always ask for feedback on any movie related topic, and are delighted when we get. Scott, would you care to share a letter only tangentially related to a recent episode?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, Kevin, a different Kevin than the last lever. <laughs> Kevin's
0: uh, re- love the next picture show. <laughs> yep, it's, is, all, it's all <laughs> Kevin's out there. I think,
1: if we, I think if we just got all the Kevins out there to subscribe, <laughs> we would have a pretty, we'd have a hit show. Kevin writes hello next picture show team well hello kevin uh love the podcast like you're all doing great work we usually don't include yeah, that part but, but that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that i just walked out of the robin campillo film bpm and would love to get your thoughts on it it's a shame award season glut is letting this film fall by the wayside though even if you did cover it i'd expect there'd be trouble finding a pairing since the perfect one had already been covered the battle of algiers Both films feature a loose narrative centered around leftist organizing and action, taking great care to detail the methods and motivations of their subjects. Though BPM diverges a bit in its more typical last third, it at first feels almost protagonist-free, centering on the collective of activists rather than the whole, again, much like Algiers. Would love to hear your thoughts on this and the film in general. Thank you. Am I the only one who saw BPM?
4: Yeah, I really want oh, to. Come on, it's on yeah, my it's, list. It's Seriously? on my pile. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. speaking I, of award you, season, you glut. people
1: need to see this film before. I mean, I'm not even like the biggest fan of this movie, but <laughs> the people who but this thing was like the like the most loved film out of out of can.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean, I've I've heard a lot of great things about it. and It's definitely like speaking of award season, glut, we are all catching up yeah. maniacally right now so that we can file our critics ballots this, this, should, this week and I that think, it is in my pile it's a like, must you, I'm, so I, I, it is I'm going I'm to happen.
1: say it's, it is a must because you, you i think there's a very strong chance you all will like it quite a bit but it, it's also the movie i would cite as the one most mysteriously not getting the attention it deserves so i'm glad it's uh, mentioned this letter the organization that he is talking about is act up in france uh, and of course there was a a uh, documentary about ACT UP that was quite great called
4: How to Survive a Plague. How to Survive
1: a Plague. And, uh, and so BPM is about, is about that, and, and he's correct uh, in that it does mm-hmm. resemble the Battle of Algiers, when you're dealing with how this group works and the decisions they make and the actions they decide to take collectively, the strategies that they have to bring attention to uh, the issue of AIDS, which in the 80s, which was very difficult to do. And some of the steps they take are quite radical. Uh, Where it differs is that it does break away to uh, a specific character who has AIDS in this romantic relationship that he has. And to me, that's not the strongest element. Of the film, I really actually liked the Battle of Algiers elements of it the most. But it would have been a good pairing for sure. I agree, or
0: maybe better than Detroit. Well, I don't know. I think, <laughs> Detroit,
1: <laughs> Detroit is definitely is certainly influenced by yeah. uh, the Battle of Algiers. Maybe better in the sense that I think you would have <laughs> liked it more.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I should say it would have been better received than Detroit. better received.
1: I, I'm pretty almost certainly guarantee that. But but again, I mean, it, I don't think it's even made a million bucks at the box. I was probably way short of that just going to be something that people are going to have to discover when it's on streaming services but keep it in your head bpm because it's quite a worthwhile film
4: well as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in The Disaster Artist and talk over what both these films have to say about movies and the people who make them, badly. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or if you're a podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at atnextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to say, Cut! Perfect! Print it! and move on never mind that we bumped into the door frame in actuality lobo would have to struggle with this problem every day we'll see you next time so-